When you think of a doctor, what image comes to mind? For a lot of people, it's a person in a white lab coat with a stethoscope around his or her neck. But with dramatic advances in healthcare and technology since the stethoscope was invented 200 years ago, is it still a useful tool? I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, a Bronx doctor shares his thoughts on whether the stethoscope still has value in the modern medical world. I believe it's not a dying breed. It shouldn't be a dying breed. Also coming up, a visit to the oldest continuous dermatology office in Manhattan. It's been in operation since 1929. Winston Churchill was a patient here. Queen Elizabeth was treated here. But first, since 1847, the New York Academy of Medicine has played a significant role in helping to advance the health of people living in cities, including, of course, here in the Big Apple. I recently sat down with the Academy's president, Dr. Joe Ivy Buford, to talk about the organization's history as well as its modern-day role in improving health in New York City and beyond. Now, the New York Academy of Medicine dates back to the mid 1800s, still going strong. What's the history there? Well, it was begun in 1847 by a group of physicians um, in New York who were really concerned with the sort of deplorable health conditions in the city in terms of sanitation and um, epidemics and other activities, and I think felt that um, the medical leadership, uh, health profession, should step forward and take a leadership role to make change. Cholera, typhoid fever, problems back then. Yeah, all of those things. And I think a lot of it caused by um, bad sanitation, poor water supply. And one of the things that we've, one of the themes of our work from the very beginning has been prevention. It's sort of, you see an epidemic, but if you go upstream backwards, you find, well, that's because, you know, we're not disposing of sanitation properly. The water isn't clean, as we've seen in cities like Flint recently. These are longstanding problems. The Academy was very active in that. It helped to to create systems for better disposal of waste here in New York City. Yeah, we did. And uh, we're very involved in the establishment of the Board of Health, which really gave the city a structure to engage systematically on tackling a number of these important health issues. We were involved in, uh, you know, pasteurization of milk, uh, st- efforts to for immunization, um, feeding programs for poor women and children. So from the very beginning, um, trying to provide a sort of private sector partner and professional expertise to the activities of of the government and of concerned citizens. And I would imagine as the city evolved, the academy evolved and the academy's interests evolved. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, uh, as time went on, I think in the, in the 19-teens, 17-teens, we um, got involved in, uh, in drug policy as a criminal justice problem. So we're uh, really saying that, uh, that drugs should be considered a public health problem with public health solutions. Now, how many years later? That's proven to be maybe 100. It's proven to be picked up and looked at again. Um, we also um, did a study uh, commissioned by Mayor LaGuardia in 1944 on the marijuana problem, which tried to uh, clarify the risks and uh, potential benefits of marijuana. And again, um, our recommendations were um, probably a little ahead of their time, but I think tried to use an evidence base to at least uh, present these issues to elected officials. Um, One of the issues we got involved in in the 30s was maternal mortality, which um, is a, was a huge issue then, and a report from the Academy which looked at all the maternal deaths um, in the city of New York over a two-year period, 19, 
1934 with the city health department, interviewed the doctors and nurses involved, interviewed families of surviving women, um, identified a whole set of issues um, that were put out as steps to be taken to make uh, giving birth safer and that really was very transformative in the practice of obstetrics. Now, this is a problem, sadly, that's still with us. And right now, um, we are actively involved with New York State, New York City, um, the New York State American College of OBGYN to try to tackle the fact that New York State is 47 out of 50 in maternal mortality in the United States, and the racial disparities are pretty appalling, um, seven to one for African-American to white women in New York City and three to one in New York State. So a number of these problems, um, solutions are, and the systems that are needed to sustain change um, get dropped, they fall out of attention, and they have to be revitalized. So what we've tried to do is sort of honor our history, but keep an eye on the issues as they recur and see what we can do to uh, make change in a, in a new environment. The Academy was one of the first organizations to investigate the impacts of the 9-11 attacks, correct? Uh, that's right. And um, our focus especially was on the impact of uh, of the 9-11 uh, attacks on people who were not there physically. So we looked at especially school children and uh, post-traumatic stress effects on school children. And they were quite considerable and worked with the city to really develop um, programs for supportive kids, giving them a chance to talk things through in the classroom, helping teachers um, manage uh, that, that kind of issue. And we tried to follow um, the sort of PTSD issue um, after that, and um, and that uh, crisis really got us interested in um, responding to emergencies in general. So um, again, uh, taking that history, we worked on um, post-Sandy uh, emergency response, especially in relation to our program on healthy aging and the fact that older persons in New York were uh, disproportionately affected, um, and the mortalities actually during Sandy were largely people over 65. Healthy aging is something that the Academy works on very hard, right, as well, helping cities allow people to age in place, if you will. That's right. And um, we were very excited about this program. It is sort of adapted from the World Health Organization, um, sort of healthy aging program. And we thought it was a nice paradigm shift because I think in the United States, we tend to think of aging as a giant uh, catastrophe looming that's going to sort of sink Medicare and destroy Social Security, when in reality, uh, most people, older people, are healthy. Um, they want to stay active and involved and give back to the city. And the fact of the matter is the numbers are dramatically increasing. I mean, in New York City, within 20 years, there'll be more people over 60 than school children. So it's not just uh, now a few sort of unusual centenarians or older people. There are now cohorts of people, and the people who do research uh, and design programs for older people actually look at groups between 60 and 70, 70 and 80, 80 and 90, and over 90, uh, because they all have different capabilities, different interests. And uh, we're very excited about our seven-year now engagement with the mayor, with the city council, and the private sector to advance New York City as an age-friendly city. So who are the people behind the scenes here at the Academy making all of this happen? 
Well, we're organized in three uh, sort of pillars, we call them. The first is our Institute for Urban Health. Um, and in that, uh, in the Institute, we have our own researchers, and we have, obviously we use research information from other people. We uh, do policy advocacy, education, and evaluation. So we have a sort of uh, think tank, do tank there, because we take the learnings and the evidence and apply it to initiatives like age-friendly uh, New York City or our work on substance abuse or other areas. The second pillar is our fellows. Um, we have over 2,000 fellows from across the health professions and professions that have an effect on health, which for us is a lot of them, people involved in housing, transportation, administration, education, economics. Um, and uh, they are elected to membership by their peers in the academy and uh, run a whole set of programs. We have 40 to 50 programs every year generated by fellows who are organized in either specialty sessions of medicine or interdisciplinary groupings um, to address issues like primary care and population health or long-term care or informatics. Um, and the third pillar is our library. And uh, we have one of the world-class uh, collections in history of medicine and public health. And um, we are now, have been the last two years, really been moving in a direction to make it much more available to the public. Um, we've always made it available to scholars. We've always had uh, public programs for people who have a hobby of history of medicine and public health or are serious scholars in the field. But um, now we want to make that information broadly available, link it to our policy work, like our drug policy work or our maternal mortality work. You can see the connections between the history and the present and, and obviously learning for the future. So those are the three buckets that we operate in, and uh, they, they link together uh, conceptually, and we think it gives us a really good set of tools to use to advance concerns and solutions for problems. Now, you have some pretty remarkable items in your library, correct? <laughs> items that date back many, 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 many years. Yes. Uh, we have about a half a million volume, volumes, uh, and the strength of the collection is sort of 17th, 18th, and 19th century history of medicine, which it's hard for us to conceptualize, but it really is the evolution of modern Western medicine. Um, and uh, it's, it, we have examples of some of the early uh, books on anatomy, uh, when uh, someone named Vesalius, who was a very famous uh, artist, actually, an anatomist who really for the first time did um, very detailed, accurate um, accounting uh, sort of pictures of the human body based on a much better understanding of how it worked. Uh, we also have an early work by Harvey who uh, really discovered the pumping functions of the heart, how it worked and how it worked uh, in the body. There are a number of other areas in specific areas like the development of mental health or um, neurology as a field, ophthalmology. So, And then um, certainly surgery is another area where we've sort of tracked the evolution of surgery um, over probably a century and a half now. There are also some obscure items, I understand, like George Washington's dentures or something like that. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we have a number of things that were left to us uh, by families of fellows, and um, the so-called Greenwood Collection is, in fact, that collection that includes George Washington's bridge, one of his bridges, which was uh, not lead, by the way. It was actually 
<laughs> it was actually uh, made of um, of ivory. One of them was made of ivory, and we have his last uh, personal tooth, which anchored the bridge. Um, and that tooth is actually in a watch fob, which was he gave to his dentist, who had created the prostheses for him. So we have the watch fob and um, and some letters uh, from Dr. Greenwood, who was his dentist, and it was very generously left to us by his family. Um, so we're excited about it, and we now have a, a section of uh, dentists and oral experts in our academy who are very keen to, again, begin to make that bridge uh, from those origins of dentistry and oral health into the important public health problem that it is today. Another area that we didn't talk about that I know the academy was very involved with, another crisis in New York, was the AIDS epidemic. Yes. One of our researchers, David Blahoff, who led something called the Center for Urban Epidemiologic Studies here for about uh, 12 years, um, was an expert researcher prior to coming here on HIV and led one of the the, uh, biggest uh, longitudinal studies over time. So we got involved um, here in New York uh, and linking it to our history in drug policy and substance abuse, especially focusing on the issue of needle exchange, the evidence base for promoting needle exchange, um, sale of clean needles, and uh, trying to um, give people the evidence they needed to realize that this was a very important intervention to um, prevent uh, spread of HIV-AIDS among people with substance abuse problems. A lot of controversial issues, right, the Academy has touched on. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the real important uh, opportunities we've had over the years is because of our commitment to evidence um, to inform solutions and problem solving and the relative neutrality. We've tried to be bipartisan in our work, so we are able to bring together stakeholders with varying points of view and sit down and help facilitate uh, meaningful conversations. And those are the kind of conversations you have to have if you're going to solve uh, challenging problems um, that, uh, that really require people in government and the private sector and the communities themselves to uh, sort of light the path for solutions. And we, we keep that philosophy of engaging the community. Um, we sort of have a phrase here, we talk about nothing, with, nothing about me without me, which really um, is a reminder to us to bring in um, individuals at all levels that are affected by these tough problems, because that's the only way you're going to get solutions at last. We're an exciting place. We have a lot of public programming uh, that I think will be of interest to people in medicine, public health issues, as well as coming to explore the library, the amazing collections, and um, and those of you that are in uh, the health professions or involved in, in improving health or committed to improving health, we urge you to come and take advantage of uh, fellowship and engagement with our community. Um, the more we have working on these important issues, the more effective we can be. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Dr. Joe Ivy Buford is president of the New York Academy of Medicine. More info at nyam.org. Next on Cityscape, a visit to a doctor's office where the old and new worlds collide. Dr. Douglas Altchek practices out of the oldest continuous dermatology office in Manhattan. And while he's very much up to speed on modern-day technologies, his office is most definitely a throwback as it's home to medical instruments that reflect a rich dermatological history. The office is a very old office. The office was established in 1929, uh, but there have been a series of dermatologists over the years, and I am the last of the dermatologists to occupy these premises. 
This is the oldest dermatology practice in New York City, the oldest continuously operating, correct? Yes, it is. Uh, we've never missed a day, and we've been in practice since 1929. There have been a lot of people uh, coming through here over the years. Uh, Winston Churchill was a patient here. Queen Elizabeth was treated here, and a number of celebrities, movie stars, tycoons. But we do reach out to all people from all walks of life as well, of course. How has the practice of dermatology changed over the years? Well, you know, originally we were known as doctors or physicians. Now we're known as providers. Patients were originally known as patients, but now they're known as customers. So there has been some change. We have tried to keep many things like they were in the past here. Nowadays, very often when you go to see a physician... The physician will not even look at you. He will spend most of the time on his computer uh, doing data entry. will occasionally turn around, but we, we've, tried to, we've tried to change that, uh, or we've, we've tried to establish a more personal relationship, which is, I think, the old way of, of practicing medicine. What about what people come to see dermatologists for? Has that changed? Originally, most of dermatology could be grouped under, in a very small group, a small range of conditions and diseases. Although we have more diseases now than ever before, we do now have a great number of patients who come to see us because of cosmetic issues, because dermatologists have always been at the forefront of cosmetic procedures, such as hair transplants, dermabrasions, liposuctions, fillers, and botulin toxin for wrinkles. For this reason, a tremendous number of the work that I do and many of my fellow dermatologists is in the area of cosmetic dermatology. On the other hand, it's important to, as I say, reach out to all sorts of people and all branches of people from all walks of life. So I might very often treat a patient with a rare tropical disease of the skin because I also happen to treat tropical diseases of the skin. Not everyone does this, and not many current modern dermatologists who recently completed dermatology programs have really the expertise. Fortunately, we have seen a vast array of diseases, including venereal diseases, which sort of come and go over the years. They're in vogue for a while, then they fall out, and then they almost disappear, then they come back. Syphilis was nearly cured and eradicated by 1960 until the sexual revolution came along, and now it is becoming more and more popular. So we can identify the early lesions of syphilis, for instance. That's why dermatologists were originally grouped under the division dermatology and syphilology. What about the techniques and the technology used to treat diseases. You gave me a tour, and there are some, I guess, museum pieces here in terms of how you used to treat people. We have greater technology now than ever before, of of course. But then again, you know, about 90% of our cases can be treated with existing technologies. We work on skin biopsies, which has remained relatively the same over the past uh, 50 years. We have better ways of investigating the nature of disease by doing immunofluorescence, by doing electron microscopy, electron microscopy of the skin, and, and better analysis of, of, of diseases through various 
routine tests. We also uh, are able to treat conditions with lasers, particularly cosmetic situations, and we, we have all sorts of ways to correct wrinkles and aging, which we didn't have before. But the basic dermatology, uh, fortunately, we have a v- wide variety of antibiotic steroids, which were not available in the 1930s or 20s. Uh, an abundance of our dermatology cases consists, of course, of acne, eczema, psoriasis, and abnormal mole growth. And that has remained remarkably unchanged, although we do, in, for instance, in, in, in psoriasis, we do have biologics, which are uh, potent and very effective ways of treating psoriasis uh, like never before. In the 1930s and 40s, basically all you had was tar baths. What was the machine you showed me that you called the Frankenstein machine? This was an electrodesicator from the year 1931, at about the same time as the original Frankenstein movie came out. It had a lot of dials, and it was was a wooden box, basically extremely well built in New York, and it was built to last because that device treated over 100,000 skin cancers and can still be used, but of course we have much more modern units here in the office that can treat these things. I absolutely love the fact, though, that you still have it here, that you allow this office to tell its story, if you will, even down to the tiles, which date back to, what, the 30s? Well, there aren't many places here in in the city of New York that you can see what medicine was like 50 years ago or 70 years ago. We do not even have a medical museum here in New York, unlike uh, a smattering of U.S. cities, cities and, uh, and, and cities abroad. London has about 10 or 15 medical museums. We don't even have one. So I'd like to preserve this, this uh, office as both a museum of dermatology and a high-tech area where we can treat patients with state-of-the-art technology. How do people react when they come in and they see the history here in this office? Not a day goes by when people do not marvel at some of the things we have here and some of the stories that we have of people who came here over the years. And it creates quite an an interesting sensation. But, you know, people have the feeling that this is like a home for them because we have had patients come here generation after generation. We have about 75 years of, of patients coming here. So they remember very often when they came here as a child and now they're, they're in their 70s, and they remember this office very well. How much do you know about the dermatologists that came before you from years ago who once worked in these offices? Well, I also happen to be a medical historian, so I know very well about the doctors who were here. The office was founded by Dr. George Clinton Andrews, who was really one of the fathers of American dermatology, and he wrote a classic textbook. He was followed by his associate, Dr. Anthony DeMancos, who uh, collaborated with him on on his book and was also extremely well-known. And he was followed by Dr. Joseph Penner, who was a real wizard in terms of dermatology treatments. And I came after Dr. Penner, so I've been here ever since. Do you come from a family of dermatologists? Uh, I come from a family of physicians. There were 12 Olczyk physicians in my family, but I'm the only dermatologist. My father was a surgeon, but he was always fascinated in dermatology, and he really encouraged me to go into dermatology. 
And what interests you most about dermatology, even after all of these years? The important thing about dermatology is that the skin is the largest organ of the body, and it is also a model for other diseases. So we can use treatments on the skin which can be applied to other parts of the body, fibrosing conditions of the skin, for, for instance, if we can cure or improve these conditions, we can find answers for cystic fibrosis, fibrosis of the, of the lungs, and, and so forth. The other good thing about dermatology is that we can make a diagnosis and treatment almost instantaneously because the skin is right there in front of us to be explored. Other organs such as the kidney, such as the intestine, such as the brain, many weeks sometimes of, the, of exams are necessary to find out what's going on, but we have it all in front of us. Dr. Altchek, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Douglas Altchek has been a dermatologist for more than three decades. He practices out of the oldest continuous dermatology office in Manhattan. It's located on the Upper East Side. More info at altchekdermatology.com. Finally today, does the stethoscope still have a heartbeat? Doctors have been using the tool for two centuries to assess the hearts, lungs, and bowels of patients by listening to the internal sounds of their bodies. But since technology has advanced so much since the stethoscope was invented in 1816, some have questioned its usefulness in today's day and age. I asked Dr. Eric Applebaum, Associate Medical Director of SBH Health System, otherwise known as St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, to share his views on the state of the stethoscope. You know, I remember when I got my first one. I remember who bought it for me. My uncle was actually a pediatrician. And it was, it was a pretty big moment. I mean, it was, the, you know, if you watch, I have kids now, if you watch any, uh, any kid, that's the first thing they put on when they pay, open that doctor kit. That's started more fights in my house than I, you know, care to tell you. But it's been, um, you know, one of those sort of icons of, of our sort of uh, tools. And, uh, you know, when you lose that first one, it's a big deal. And I remember that also. And then as, as I got older, it was just give me any old one. But I remember at the beginning, it was trying to get the best one. I knew all the names and all the companies. I knew which version, what does he have, what does she have. I'd say I progressed to being more uh, in love with the you know, ability to use it than what the technology is. But lately, you know, some of these younger docs have some pretty high-tech stuff. And that's been a, a nice thing to see. Why was it so important to you as a doctor coming up? Um, well, it's, you know, it's what gets you the initial uh, touch to a patient. It's how you get close to a patient. Now, we obviously learn to use all our senses and stuff, but, you know, that's the first time you touch a patient, and it means so much to a patient, right? A patient wants to feel you put that stethoscope on their chest and listen to the heart. They're waiting to, for you to, to look at them and reassure them everything sounds good, their lungs sound good, whether it's a, a pediatric patient in the ER, you know, when you listen, he sounds great, his lungs are clear, that's what a family or a mom, you know, want to hear. So that was the what really made me um, realize how important it was and, and love the whole idea. As you mentioned, there are electronic alternatives to the stethoscope right now. How frequently are they being used in practice? Well, there's right now um, in electronically, I'd say, enhanced stethoscopes. So there's some that are that have um, speakers and stuff like that that could detect much, uh, you know, better sounds. I don't see too many of them. They're kind of expensive, and people can lose them. So I'd say, you know, maybe one every ten. 
lately that I see on campus. But remember, I'm also seeing lots of uh, nurses who have the smaller ones and docs with older ones. So I'm seeing a wide variety. But you'll see a younger resident every once in a while come through with the one that's got, you know, here, let me turn it on for you. And I always laugh when I hear that. What do you mean turn it on? It's got to be on. Uh, it takes too much for me to figure out how to use it. But um, I, I like my old one. So now we, though, are faced with this debate. Is the stethoscope a dying breed? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I've heard this uh, debate. Um, I believe it's not a dying breed. It shouldn't be a dying breed. There's so many examples of when you need to use something quickly and where the alternative just is not as good. So, for example, if you're a pediatrician and you have to decide uh, whether or not a child is wheezing, you could quickly listen, get your answer, and form a treatment plan. You don't have to send them for an x-ray to look for something. You might even pick that a diagnosis up with an x-ray anyway. So um, what are your alternative there? You're not going to CAT scan everyone. It's dangerous, actually, for the radiation. So there's no way it should, be, it should be dying. I think now with the computers and the ability of people to have, um, you know, the training is even easier now because I could send audio files of every sound in the book. And, and I just think it's something that is going to be around for a long time. Plus, I think the patients still want it. I think the doctors still want it. That being said, then why are we having this debate? Well, there are some technologies in terms of, you know, the heart specifically, uh, the ability to listen to certain murmurs. You know, there's always, a, you know, obviously a lot of discussion about the actual um, capability um, of the doctors that are coming out. Do they have enough capability that's as good as the other technologies? So, for instance, if I could detect a murmur with my stethoscope, am I not sending them for that echocardiogram? For the most part, we are. But that's not the only reason. You know, for me to get an idea, say, hey, I could rule out one of the worst pathologies with my, with my stethoscope, and I don't need to send him today for the echocardiogram, that's something that's a, that's a positive thing anyway. So, but people do believe that some of the sonogram machines that could look into the heart, I know that some of the medical schools are giving them out right away and using them and teaching and, and teaching students to this right away, feel like it'll, it'll go away. That's where the debate is. But I, you know, I've been taking uh, you know, informal surveys since I saw this debate start because we just celebrated the 200th anniversary of the stethoscope. And I've gotten overwhelmingly from my colleagues, no, it's never going to go away. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Dr. Eric Applebaum is Associate Medical Director of SBH Health System, otherwise known as St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you haven't already, we invite you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Cityscape news and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.